what Paul did was to make God known through the person of Christ. It's my way of boiling down the Areopagus speech. What's it all about? One sentence, Paul made God known through the person of Christ. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to When in Athens, part one of two from Pastor Paul Twiss. What message can turn the world upside down? In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul gives a speech to people who made an altar to an unknown God. He sought to reset their worldview. The Apostle's audience did not believe you could have a personal relationship with God. By keeping God at a distance, they objectified God and no longer needed Him. Pastor Paul says our society today has not progressed very far from Acts 17. And how true is that? We live in a world full of darkness that objectifies God and by doing so, renders God unknown. But God is in the business of making Himself known. Here's part one of When in Athens. If you could open up to Acts chapter 17, and a well-known text, Paul's speech at the Areopagus, we'll read from verse 16 through to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and following. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring." 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And thus reads the word of the Lord. It was in 1948 that a man named Richard Weaver first wrote down the sentence, Ideas Have Consequences. He authored a book by that title, Ideas Have Consequences. And it has become something of an idiom in our own language because it's true. Words also have consequences. When we put ideas to words, they can have significant consequences. There were some words that were spoken in first century AD in a city in the Middle East. And because those words were spoken, you are here this evening. Words have consequences. Because those words were spoken in Jerusalem on that day, you set all other things aside every Sunday. Because those words were spoken, you don't commit to other things, but you come to church. Because those words were spoken, you give a portion of your budget to the church. Because those words were spoken, you strive to learn the hard skill of grieving with those who grieve and rejoicing with those who rejoice. You lay down your life for the sake of others, for the good of others, even though the activity may have no inherent interest to you. Because those words were spoken, you do things which the world looks at and labels us crazy. Words have consequences. And the words that I'm referring to, of course, are those words we find in the first chapter of the book of Acts when Jesus says to his disciples, preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. I'll often say the reason you are here this evening is because Jesus gave that command. He commissioned the apostles to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And the mission was successful such that now here we sit, recipients of salvation in Christ. The gospel made it, and we are believers in him this evening. Now as we think about those two points in history, Jesus commanding his apostles to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth, and this particular local church, and it could be any local church meeting this evening, one question we might ask is how? How on earth was the mission so successful? How was it that the gospel made it to the ends of the earth? How is it that the the mission carries on and it keeps on advancing? In the face of all that would hinder it, how was the mission so successful? And the answers we could give are many, of course. We might say, well, because the Holy Spirit accompanied the apostles on their way. And of course, that initial command that Jesus gave was to wait 
until the Holy Spirit came with power and then to go. So that would be one answer to give. Another we could say is that God ordained that we would be sat here this evening. Before the foundation of the world, God ordained that this evening you would be sat where you are sat this evening. And that also would be true. But from a human perspective, from from our vantage point, how is it that that mission has been so successful? If we look at the book of Acts, it would seem to be that Luke is telling us it was through the preaching of the word. I've said many times before, Acts is full of speeches. If you count them all up, on average, every other chapter in the book of Acts is a speech from one of the apostles. So Luke seems to be impressing upon us it is through the preaching of the word that God does his work. And again, biblically, we know that that is true. So that then raises the question, well, what did they preach? What was their message that was so powerful? And this is where Acts 17 is such a helpful text for us. If we zoom out just a little bit, we're in that middle portion of Acts that we typically think of in terms of Paul's three missionary journeys. So from 13 through to 20, we see the Apostle Paul going about his three missionary journeys, and it is a long portion of narrative. And I don't know about you, but I can feel somewhat overwhelmed as we read one paragraph after another, one chapter after another of Paul planting churches, preaching the gospel, and and you're trying to make sense of where he is in the world and what's going on. One helpful thing to be mindful of that, that might just help you make sense of this long narrative is that Luke records for us three speeches in 13 through 20, three key speeches that Paul preaches, and they chart, as it were, the progression of his ministry. So we see in 13, Paul preaching to the Jews. And then we move to 17, and we get a speech of Paul interacting with the Gentiles. And then in 20, Paul preaches to the church, to the Ephesian elders. So first, a speech to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, and then to the church. And that's intentional. Luke has arranged the narrative in an intentional way to chart the progression of Paul's mission. And so what we have here in 17 is somewhat indicative of the ministry that Paul was having to the Gentiles in that area. You see, without putting too much weight on either of any of these speeches, what we find in each of them is a flavor of the ministry that was Paul was having to those people at that time. As we read Paul's well-known speech on the Areopagus, we come to understand something of the ministry and the message that he gave to Gentiles. Now, if I can reduce it down to one sentence, what Paul did was to make God known through the person of Christ. It's my way of boiling down the Areopagus speech. What's it all about? One sentence, Paul made God known through the person of Christ. That's what goes on in Acts chapter 17. There's nothing complicated. There are no hidden secrets. He made God known to these Gentiles, specifically through the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the message that turned the world upside down. There's a riot and they say, these men who have turned the world upside down. And people like to go there. It's a nice soundbite to kind of synthesize what happens in the book of Acts. I love thinking about how the gospel turned the world upside down. And of course, in reality, what it was doing was turning one individual world upside down after one individual world. Because to be sure, there are many that reject the gospel. 
There are many that scoff. There are many that walk away. But some believed. And for those who believed, their world was turned upside down. Nothing would ever be the same again. And it's through them that the gospel advances. And then they become those that tell others about Jesus Christ. They then become those that make God known through the person of Christ. It is the same message that we are called to preach today. There is nothing that has changed since Acts chapter 17. As you think about your unbelieving family member, as you think about the antagonistic work colleague, as you think about just how dark society has become and how hostile it is to the gospel, the great encouragement is this, that when God makes himself known through the person of Christ, worlds are turned upside down. And he's still doing it exactly the same today as he did in Acts chapter 17. So we can break Paul's speech down into three parts, and he begins with the unknown God. We're told in verse 16 that he's in Athens, and he's waiting for his travel companions. We're told that he gets provoked, annoyed in the spirit. Why? Because there are idols everywhere, statues everywhere in Athens. As was his custom, he goes to the synagogue and reasons with the Jews, and he goes to the marketplace to interact with the Gentiles. And then, note this, verse 18, Luke takes particular care to point out to us that there are two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, Athens would have been known as a seat of learning, full of philosophers, and two prominent schools at this time were the Epicureans and the Stoics. We'll talk more about what they believed later on this evening, but for now, it's sufficient to know that both systems of thought declared that you can't have a personal relationship with God. So the Epicureans believed that the, the gods were far off and cared not for created beings. You can't have a relationship with them. The Stoics believed God was in everything. He's in the rocks and he's in the mountains and he's in the grass and he's in the rivers. So that he's not personable, you can't have a relationship with him, he's just there everywhere. And then they engage with him and they say, what is this message? We haven't heard this before. They're confused because he's preaching about Christ and his resurrection. And so they take him to the Areopagus. This might be a location, you can go there today and see where possibly Paul preached this sermon it might be a reference to a particular group that had named themselves the Areopagus, a kind of council that determined who was speaking wisely and who wasn't. Either way, we get the, the picture. Paul is brought before many to explain his message. And what Paul does is curious. He says, almost by way of a compliment, I see that you're religious. I see many objects of worship, but I also see this altar. And he zeroes in on one particular item that he's seen, an altar to the unknown God. Now, why did Paul begin his presentation of the gospel there? There are hundreds, if not thousands of ways in which Paul could have begun this speech in light of the cultural context in which he found himself. And yet he begins by pointing out this altar to the unknown God. And the reason is because by worshipping an unknown God, you don't really worship God at all. He says you're very religious, but then he, he cuts that sentiment down by saying, I saw an altar to an unknown God. To render God as unknown is to keep him at a distance. 
Both systems of thought kept God at a distance. And when you keep God at a distance, you render him into an object, a thing. He's no longer a who, he's now a what. That's why Paul says in the next comment, what therefore you worship. You have objectified God. He's no longer a who, he's a what, he's an object. And certain things happen when you objectify God. When he remains unknown in your thought system, now you can compartmentalize him. You can do whatever you want with him. That's why Paul launches and says he is not living in temples. He can't be contained, which is how you've come to think of the God of the universe, that somehow you can contain him. Certain other things follow. When God is unknown, you've kept him at a distance. He's objectified. You no longer need him. You've disassociated yourself of any need of God. And if you push that relationship far enough, he starts to need you. That's why Paul says you can't keep him in a temple, nor is he served by human hands. This is where their thought structure had led them. And as if that weren't bad enough, everything else falls apart thereafter. You see, these philosophers would think in certain categories. Metaphysics, ethics, aesthetics. And every single category in which they would debate and argue collapses the second that you make God unknown. When he's kept at a distance, truth becomes arbitrary. There is no longer any standard for truth. We see this in the text by their response to Paul. He would walk around Athens and see hundreds of deities being represented. And every god has their own truth. And so he brings the truth, the actual truth. And they have no ears for it. Their hearts are hardened to it. They label him a babbler. And they say, you're preaching foreign divinities. And Luke adds that explanatory comment because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And more than a few commentators have suggested what they would have heard when he preached Jesus and the resurrection was the proclamation of two deities, a male and a female counterpart. His Jesus and his Anastasius, the resurrection, male and female partners. That's how close their hearts were to God's revealed truth, because God had been objectified. And following on from that, their system of ethics then collapses. You see, idolatry and immorality go hand in hand. They've objectified God. They've kept him at a distance so that they can now compartmentalize him. And now there is no standard of morality by which they all agree upon. Culturally, we can infer this just by what we know of Athens at that time. But notice even how they treat Paul. When you objectify God, you start to objectify people. Whatever you think about God affects what you think about people. And so for no good reason, they disdain him when he shows up. They don't attribute him with any worth nor his message. What, what does this babbler wish to say? The grammar of that particular question infers that they believed he had nothing good to say. They gave him no sense of dignity. And following on from that, their system of aesthetics collapses. We might think the Athenians had a, a taste for beauty. But you have to know when Paul walked around and saw all of these statues, many would have been representative of a deity, but just as many would have represented it unspeakable things. Things that we can't even mention, and yet in ancient Athens, they were being celebrated. 
as beautiful because they had no notion for deriving a concept of good, beautiful things. So everything collapses the second that you say, my God is unknown. And you can see that Paul begins there because what he wants to do is reset their worldview. He wants to start afresh on a clean slate with them. A friend of mine, his daughter this week, Lord willing, will go in for her last treatment of chemotherapy in what has been a, a, a two-year journey for them. And he was telling me at the very beginning when the diagnosis is first made, one thing the doctors will do is to reset her blood system. However it is, the body produces all of the things in the blood. They hit reset, makes her very vulnerable. But they need to do that as a way the initial fight against the cancer is to hit reset. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Don't think for a second that Paul is showing up and saying, I'm just going to tweak your guys' theology. Hear me out because there's just this one area that I want to nuance a little bit and then you'll be on the right track. Paul begins where he does because he needs to give them an entirely new worldview. Their world needs to be turned upside down. And so he begins by saying, hey, I saw this altar. It said to the unknown God, and I need to tell you about this God. And I trust that you can see the parallels with our society today. We really haven't progressed very far from Acts 17. Just as our pastor was saying this morning, it, it doesn't matter what someone says. To a large extent, it doesn't matter what they do. If they don't know Christ savingly, their God is unknown. They are keeping God at a distance. And they do that because it's really comfortable to keep God at a distance. And there may be times when someone brings God just a little bit closer for some perceived benefit. But for as long as they sit outside salvation in Christ, their God is always unknown. He is always being kept at a distance. They are always objectifying him, compartmentalizing him, doing what they want with him. And what they need is to hit reset. And it is only the gospel that will do that. In fact, this is the very theology that Luke has been giving us from chapter 1 of the book of Acts. God needs to show up and invade a person's worldview. God needs to make himself known if they're to get on the right track theologically, spiritually, ethically, aesthetically. And Luke shows us in the book of Acts that's exactly what God is in the business of doing. We begin the book with Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and he passes on the commission to the disciples. Preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the spirit descends and the church is birthed. And from then on, you notice the apostles drawing particular attention to the fact that everything they do is in the name of Christ. Read the narrative closely and you see that they can't go very long in their ministry but a day without saying at the top of their voices, I'm doing this in the name of Christ. Because they want to make sure that there is no one looking in on them saying, those guys are really special. They're saying, no, no, Christ is really special. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul contends that the message of Acts 17 is the same message we're called to preach today to our world. Salvation is in Christ, who makes himself known to sinners like us 
and his message will reset our worldview. When God makes himself known through the person of Christ, worlds are turned upside down. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you'd like to learn more about what this ministry has to offer you, both in teaching and in encouragement for your walk with Jesus, come to TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcast for our entire archive of Scripture messages. Join us tomorrow. It's part two as we continue in this short series, Win in Athens. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.